You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD+, and that helps you make energy, it helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD+, even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD Plus risk-free for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD Plus. It's what I use. Today's cool fact of the day is, well, you can't tickle yourself. Recent research has come up with a possible explanation for this, though. When you intend to make a movement, your brain is going to send a command to your muscles to make the movement, and it's also going to predict the actual sensory result that would happen from that coming movement. When the prediction and the sensation match, your brain will subdue the nerve response. And that's why you just aren't ticklish when you do it yourself. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. Today's podcast is going to be a lot of fun because we're going to talk about one of my favorite topics which is, well, brain monitoring, specifically around things like sleep and human performance. We have two guests today. Uh, One is Dan Lewandowski. He's a co-founder of Advanced Brain Monitoring, and he's served as its president uh, for more than five years. Pretty impressive guy. Dan has been the principal investigator for 17 NIH research grants He's written more than 20 journal articles, has 18 patents pending, and he's been the CFO of a publicly traded company before he started an award-winning winery. Call him a man of many 
capabilities here. Our second guest is Dr. Philip Westbrook, Chief Medical Officer of Advanced Brain Monitoring and a Clinical Professor of Medicine at UCLA. He's served as President of the American Sleep Disorder Association and has had a Distinguished Service Award for that. He's lectured hundreds of times. He's a Clinical Fellow and Associate Professor of Medicine at the Mayo Medical School in Rochester and basically knows more about sleep than anyone else that I've that I've come across here. So Dan and Philip, welcome to the show. Thank, Thank you very much for having us. Well, let's start out with a story. I would love to know from each of you and, and Phil or Philip, let's start with you. How did you get into spending your life studying sleep? I mean, you've been doing this for a long time. Why did you start doing this as, I would say, an early pioneer in this kind of research? What attracted you to it? Well, my, my uh, first interest in sleep started, uh, other than, you know, sort of a recreational interest, <laughs> was uh, because of the, uh, this one report that, uh, by a Frenchman that people stop breathing during sleep. My background is in pulmonary disease and pulmonary physiology. And so I was interested in breathing during sleep, uh, managed to find a patient who actually stopped breathing during sleep, and uh, with very sort of primitive equipment for the time, we put him on a gurney outside my office in the pulmonary function laboratory at Mayo, put in all kinds of monitors, and sure enough, as soon as he fell asleep, or someone told me that he fell asleep, uh, he stopped breathing. That... Uh, that sort of changed the trajectory of my career. So this was an early case of sleep apnea? It was an early case of what at that time was a very rare disease called sleep apnea, yes. Do you think that people have sleep apnea more now, or do you think that we just recognize they have it more? Well, I think, I think both is true. I think we do have it more, but I suspect that, uh, you know, the uh, sound of snoring uh, reverberating off caves made it apparent <laughs> to uh, primitive man that uh, sleep affected breathing. It's a particularly human condition, and so it's the price we pay for speaking. Our airways are, are altered so that we can use this single tube not only for for uh, talking, not, or not only for breathing and swallowing, but now can exquisitely change its shape so that we can talk, so that we can form words. And that makes it very collapsible. So it, it's a biological fact that, that that's there. Now, you're working with Dan at Advanced Brain Monitoring, and it's interesting that we're already moving from brain monitoring into the airways because, well, breathing and having a brain sort of go together here. Um, what what attracts you to looking at the brain when you're primarily, your background is in the, the pulmonology there? What's the connection between how we breathe and how we think? Well, it is how we think uh, certainly does affect our breathing, but state, state of brain affects our breathing. So when we disconnect from the outside environment in this 
very strange brain state called, or states called sleep, uh, it affects the rest of the body. And the brain, when asleep, does not send the same kinds of signals to the muscles that control the upper airway opening and keep it open so that we can breathe in. And uh, with sleep, those muscles relax, as all muscles do, and uh, the airway under certain circumstances can collapse or nearly collapse and interfere with breathing. And if you don't breathe, you can die. What percentage of people listening to this show would you guess are having breathing issues when they sleep that are affecting their, their waking brain state? Well, the conventional wisdom that is, is that about 10%, um, more males than females. But it actually is going up because one of the changes that has taken place as we have evolved uh, is not only a species that can talk, but also a species that can farm. So with the invention of farming, there suddenly was excess food and people could uh, eat. And so that led to the creation of, um, of you know, politicians and bloggers and uh, people. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's, it's, it's the, the, Increasing obesity, not only in the Western world, but now through much of the emerging uh, economies, uh, directly increases the risk of having breathing difficulty during sleep. Now, if someone's put on 20 pounds, which is just so painfully common, and you guys may know I used to weigh 300 pounds, and certainly I snore a lot less now that I'm, I'm at a healthy weight, but if, if they're dealing with an extra 20 or so pounds... They go to sleep at night and they probably don't have, you know, full-blown, I'm a zombie all the time because I have a full-blown apnea, but maybe their, their sleep breathing isn't as effective as it could be. What are they going to feel the next morning? How are they going to experience this over the, the course of weeks and months and years? Like, like, what will the trajectory and their performance look like? Well, 20 pounds may be significant for any one individual who is sort of on the cusp of having his airway collapse when they're asleep. Maybe it only collapses a little bit when they're on their back uh, and they're fine when they're on their side and not the airway isn't so influenced by gravity. But even a little bit of uh, sleep apnea over time may add up to a significant risk factor for higher blood pressure for diabetes, type 2 diabetes, and for decreased cognitive function, decreased executive function by the brain. If you have even minor, pretty minor sleep disordered breathing, you may have a lot more arousals or awakenings, if you will, unremembered awakenings out of sleep This interferes with the continuity of sleep and interferes with the quality of sleep. And we would define quality by its ability to make you, uh, to be restorative so that you can function well during the daytime. Got it. So they'll, they'll experience lower performance if they, uh, if they do that. Um, Yeah. Okay. And this is, it goes, it's kind of obvious, right? Your sleep 
if it's good sleep, you'll wake up feeling rested and you'll perform better. And there are studies that show you don't control your blood sugar very well if you don't get enough sleep. So you can have a 40% decrease in your ability to handle a blood sugar swing. So things like that happen. Now, let's switch gears a little bit to talk about some of the tech. And Dan, how did you get into all of this tech? And uh, I'd love to hear that. And then I want to hear your take on bringing monitoring and feedback tools in on this problem that Philip, uh, Philip has so accurately described. Well, from my own personal experience, um, I was a loud snorer at a very, very young age. And so as I got older, by the time I was in my early 40s, my snoring evolved to sleep apnea. So I met Dr. Westbrook, I was around 43, and we started talking about what sleep medicine needed as far as technology that could make it more accessible. It was very, we're talking about back in 2000, 2001, and the number of people that the discussion, the public awareness for sleep apnea was quite low. And we felt that it was necessary to develop tools that would allow patients to be diagnosed in their home, giving them better access to care. And so it, it's kind of like the, the evolution of our first product that was designed to diagnose sleep apnea kind of went along with my sleep apnea evolving. So when we had our initial devices, then we went into the sleep centers to test them. Um, my initial experience was that they told me I stopped breathing 70 times an hour on my back um, and I was essentially normal on my side. My oxygen saturations were dipping well into the low 80s when I was on my back and I was essentially normal on my side. So that idea that Dr. Westbrook came to Chris Burke and myself and said, I think we need to develop this because there's a medical need has now that device is the most popular device in the world that diagnoses about twelve to 15,000 patients a month. And the name of this device so, is? Uh, it's called the Aries device. Okay. It's worn on the forehead and is used to diagnose sleep apnea. So that was our first technology that went directly at the at sleep apnea in trying to make it more accessible and providing a technology that made it easy enough for a patient to be able to get diagnosed in their home. So, so you kind of had a desperate burning desire to not wake up 70 times, was it a minute or an hour? Uh, that was 70 times per hour, per hour. that so I would stop breathing. <laughs> so it, it's amazing. So many of the people I've interviewed on, on the Bulletproof Executive show are people who had this desire to fix a problem, and certainly I'm one of those, but for you, it was a sleep problem, and so you ended up forming a career around that. You got to meet Dr. Westbrook, and you've, you've created this device that's used, the Aries device is used by medical professionals to formally diagnose sleep apnea, right? Now, what, what about some of the newer stuff that you've got? This idea, I, I suppose, it, and now I'm going to be a little bit rude, but we'll call it spouse replacement, because in, in <laughs> In the cave, it's the spouse's job to kick you when you snore so you roll over, right? Uh, but since some spouses don't kick very well and some people don't have anyone in bed with them, so you guys have a device now that basically will tell you when you're sleeping on your back, which is worse for your breathing, so you can turn on your side. 
absolutely correct. So for 25 years, it's been recommended the sleep medicine physicians would recommend that the patient go and sew tennis balls in the back of their bed shirt to try and avoid the supine position. When you're on your back, gravity tends to help contribute to the collapse of the airway. So um, almost everybody is more susceptible to collapse and deeper oxygen desaturations when they're on their back. For those that don't have sleep apnea, they'll simply snore more when they're on their back. And this was the point that you were making about the spouse and the elbow. So what we wanted to do in thinking about there are so many patients who are prescribed continuous positive airway pressure for the treatment of sleep apnea, but only about 50% of patients um, are compliant to that therapy. So we wanted to develop alternatives that patients would be more willing to wear. And so our position product is called Night Shift. And what we did was we took a little bit of a technology advance. We were using what they call haptic motors or the vibrations that you get um, from your cell phone. And we were doing feedback in the, in the podcast that you did with Chris a couple of years ago. She talked about um, giving the, the feedback to the marksman to improve their learning we took that same concept and that same uh, technology and put it into a device that's worn around the neck so that when you're on your back, it gently vibrates. We did not want to alert the person awake so that they can't fall back asleep, but it generally vibrates but increases slowly in intensity until you finally get off your back. So if, and that's if the product we call the night shift. If you're watching this on iTunes video or on our YouTube channel, I'm actually holding one. You guys sent me a demo a couple months ago. I played around with it. And it's just a, a little device. Uh, it looks kind of like a, one of those shocking dog collars, uh, potentially, but without the electrical shock component. Uh, and you basically can put it on your neck, and it does exactly what you said. You know, it, it, it vibrates. And it's, it's, a really, it's a really cool idea, and it's a relatively simple idea that says, what if you just made this one change? So many people kick and turn when they sleep, particularly if they aren't reaching a state of deep sleep. So uh, to have a device help you do things or help you control things you're not conscious of, it, that's a core biohacking principle. Like what's the body doing when you're not paying attention and how do you train the body independently to do things better or just to make yourself more aware of it? So here you are, you're asleep. You're not that aware when you're asleep and your body's doing stuff that doesn't serve the body, doesn't serve your mind or your goals. So you have a little thing that, that kicks. I think it's, it's a brilliant idea. Um, the other thing that, that I've come across in my quest for better sleep and all is using a, a splint to position the lower jaw forward so that the airway doesn't mm -hmm. collapse. And I do that as well. I, I've done that for almost 10 years now. I have a custom-made splint that, that really helps with my sleep quality. Have you combined this with splinting or non-CPAP ways, or is this enough by itself? So for some patients, it will be enough. We actually have another product. I don't know if you're aware of it, but we've developed a, a product that is a trial or a temporary uh, oral appliance that allows the patient <laughs> to try and see if they get a good outcome before they spend the money for the custom appliance. So I, of course up in you guys Canada, have done that. patients have to pay. What's that? I, I said, of course you guys have done that because you're biohackers. No, I, I love that. Tell me more. This, this is exciting. All right. 
So, and this was actually based on uh, the National Institute of Health gave us over a million dollars to research how to improve outcomes with oral appliance therapy. And this product was an evolution of all of that. And what we learned ultimately is you need to figure out how to get the jaw in the forward position optimally to take the guesswork out of it. So we've we've wrapped a whole system into this and made it available for dentists and now we're putting it into hospitals, uh, anesthesia, where when patients are recovering from general anesthesia, there's a great risk of having the uh, undiagnosed sleep apnea add tremendous complications in the recovery process. So that's another area where uh, people who are listening to this podcast, if they're going in and having surgery, they'll need to be aware, would want to know if they have sleep apnea because they'd be much more susceptible to complications post-surgery if they're not getting effectively treated for it. That is fascinating. I never thought of the post-operative state where you're even in a deeper sort of place than you're going to go in uh, a delta sleep. So I, I've done some other things that I haven't talked about so much on, on the show because I, I'm a, I, I've a guinea pig. So I wore an appliance to expand my upper palate and to bring my lower jaw forward. And I've artificially raised the height of my back molars, which gave me more chin without surgery, but more specifically calmed the sympathetic nervous response that comes from the trigeminal nerve. And if you're driving in your car and that didn't make any sense, I apologize. What I'm saying here is that your fight or flight response gets kicked off if you're clenching your jaw or if when you're sleeping, your jaw falls backwards and impinges on one of the main nerves inside of your face. Uh, for me, this was a big problem, and I had no idea how much physical stress I was carrying just because of my jaw positioning, which happened because of what my mom ate when she was carrying me, mostly. Uh, that would be gluten. Gluten causes these changes in the shape of your upper palate and in the formation of the jaw. So I've repositioned that stuff, and mom, I love you, and I wish you hadn't eaten so many donuts. So... <laughs> Now, that's a long story to sort of preface a, a, a question there, but both post-surgically and sleep-wise, if people have these slight structural changes in the shape of their jaw that affect their ability to get air into their airway and all of that, um, is sleeping on their side going to be enough? As I said before, it could be. I Another personal story that you'll love is that I was – I was born with a very narrow arch and back uh, when I was, you know, in the early 60s, instead of expanding uh, the jaw, they removed teeth. So I had braces and I had my teeth removed so that the number of teeth would fit my jaw rather than going the other way. <laughs> and then it led me predisposed for sleep apnea because the tongue needs to be able to come forward during yeah. sleep. And I had less area for my tongue. So one of the ways of looking at the likelihood of having sleep apnea is simply by looking at the tongue. And if they, if they, if they have scallops and scallops are little grooves in the side of the tongue, um, what it means is your tongue is pushing up against the side of your teeth all day, and it just means that the the combination of what you're genetically predisposed to in uh, in your orofacial structure makes it more difficult for you, and it will also increase the likelihood of you having sleep apnea. 
and and possibly needing more than just the position therapy. So the idea of combination therapies where you can do position and then potentially adding an oral appliance. They have a number. Dr. Westbrook was involved in a, another technology that is an oral stri- or a nasal strip that is worn that either reduces snoring or also treats sleep apnea. And there was a, a paper presented last week at the International Sleep Conference that talked about the Provent therapy, which is a the nasal strips that we're talking about, and the uh, number of patients who could adapt to it increased tremendously when they were off their side. So combination therapy can work. Now, yeah. let's say that someone's driving in their car listening to the show, and they're going, I have no idea if I have sleep apnea. My spouse says that uh, you know I, I snore sometimes. How much concern should they have about this? Like on the overall scope of, you know, I should eat right, I should exercise, I should meditate, all all the things that that do that. Like, is is this a big thing or is this a little thing? And how do I know if it's big for me? Well, snoring is, snoring is a sign of airflow limitation as one is trying to breathe in during sleep. So it's one end of a spectrum of airway collapse that is occurring. So snoring... Uh, is a sign that things are not perfect with your breathing as you are sleeping. But on the other hand, it may be more of an acoustic annoyance than anything else. So how do you know if it's important? Well, if it's really loud, that's probably an increased, you're at increased risk for sleep apnea. If your wife, spouse, or uh, otherwise bed partner (laughs) notices that you appear to stop breathing uh, during sleep, then that's a big risk factor. Uh, If you are sleepy at all during the daytime, and that means really falling asleep when you don't intend to, even if it's watching TV or reading a boring book. If you fall asleep, then, then you're even more at risk. If you are male, if you are overweight, or as uh, Dan says, had a scalloped tongue or a small jaw, more risk. Uh, how do you find out? Well, you find out finally by actually objectively uh, having someone look at your breathing during sleep. And uh, as Dan says, we've invented a device now owned by somebody else uh, that does this easily in your own home. So by now there's uh, 10,000 people are saying, hmm, that sounds like a good idea. Uh, That's some subset of people who are listening this week. What kind of a person do they call? Like, Like how would I find someone in my hometown if I lived in, let's say, Colorado Springs? Like what do I Google for to find someone who's going to hook me up with one of these devices and tell me if I should hack my snoring and hack my apnea or not? Well, you know, usually you, you start with your own private practitioner, you're, you're okay. the guy who's nor, you normally see thing and say, uh, Doc, uh, I've been listening to this uh, podcast and, and I think maybe I have, quote, sleep apnea, unquote, or have trouble breathing during sleep. Hopefully then they would uh, get you in contact with a doctor who perhaps specializes in uh, sleep medicine. Okay. And... Uh, Hopefully, they would 
tell you, okay, uh, they would examine you and take a good history and see if indeed you are at risk and, and the ARIES actually has a, a built-in questionnaire that will assess risk for sleep apnea. One would hope that the doctor would then, uh, you know, decide to, to uh, do the, the right uh, test which in this case would be a home sleep test for sleep apnea. Okay, so what what you do is... is Dave, one thing we could do is... Uh, Go ahead. Dave, one thing we could do is put a link up on your website to the ARIES questionnaire where if people were interested in completing the questions and identify the likelihood of them having sleep apnea, we could make that available to them uh, through the Bulletproof website. I, I would love to do that to help people figure this out and, and then they can request a referral to a sleep medicine specialist and, and go down that path or um, maybe, right. and I'm not sure actually, in this uh, the night shift device, the one I've been playing with it that helps you to know when you're sleeping, this is a consumer grade device or is this a medical grade device? Like, can I, can I buy this? It, it was actually cleared by the FDA last week. It is cleared for the treatment of sleep apnea and snoring. So it does require a prescription. Um, it can, the, can be prescribed by a dentist or an MD, a dentist if it's for snoring, a medical doctor for the treatment of sleep apnea. Um, one of the things you're asking, I know that the, the concept of the biohacking and when we were talking before about combination therapies, uh, one of the advantages of night shift is that it records information during the night on how you're doing. It identifies how many times you attend to sleep on your back, how quickly you respond to the feedback. We can measure the, our measurement of sleep wake. I know a lot of, um, of the, of the, of your followers are wearing the different wearable devices that are giving them their sleep efficiency measures during the night. And what we've done is we provide a report that gives them what they call a hypnogram or the complete period that they were asleep with little indications of when we recognize that they were awake so that they can look at not only a number for sleep efficiency, but when it occurred during the night and we align that both with what sleeping position they're in and also their snoring level. So they can use the snoring to, if in the example we were talking about with you wearing your oral appliance and the night shift and having some questions of, is the night shift enough? They would be able to try different measures of, does this have an impact on their snoring and their sleep efficiency over the course of the night with or without the therapy. So you can, uh, for those who are snorers, they can turn off the feedback if they want to look at how they may be able to change their snoring or their sleep quality patterns using night shift simply as a monitor oh. rather than as a therapy. So it can be used either way, but provides some of the best, it's a tigraphy, so it's not EEG-based sleep, but it is very, the algorithms, because they're being worn around the neck, is much, much more accurate in measuring sleep and wake than what you're able to obtain from the wrist. So that was actually my next question. I, I've got one of these basis bands here, and a lot of people don't know that uh, for a period of a few months, uh, I was a co-founder and CTO of, of Basis. And Basis has uh, some new ads out these days around, Intel just bought them, uh, around getting sleep quality from the wrist. 
And what you guys have found is you found that getting sleep quality from the neck, which would be you know more like wearing a, a collar, um, but doing it you know with the night shift device, that you're getting much better data uh, because basically if the arm flips around, so you can't tell if the, the arm is moving or the the body's moving, right? Is, is that kind of the basic reason? Well, the, so the basis has more advanced technology than say the Fitbit. Oh, so yeah, I was sure. referring to the atigraphy based technologies. Measuring sleep wake with the actigraph from the neck is better than the wrist. The basis, on the other hand, has some other technologies built into it that I have not done the comparisons with our device as I have looked in the literature on what a, a medical grade, for example, actigraph that an insomnia patient may wear versus the sort of accuracy that we get from night shift. Okay. I, I haven't had a chance to review the data that comes from my night shift device, so I'm not, I'm not certain, uh, uh, and certainly you guys are way more qualified than I am. I am a biohacker, not a sleep uh, expert, uh, although I know more than the average bear. Um, the other things that, that I've started doing is I use a, a Bedit sensor, so I can get my full heart rate variability uh, and my, the changes in my pulse overnight, and I record temperature, humidity, and sound levels and light levels all night long. And this is so much data that I actually don't really look at it that often unless there's something weird going on, but it's all in the cloud, which is remarkably cool. So I'm, I'm keenly interested to add this to my arsenal and to decide if, if sleeping on my side is a better move. Um, one of the, the things that is a key variable that we haven't even talked about is, what about your mattress? So if you're sleeping on a mattress that's either too soft or too hard or whatever else, isn't that like a huge variable on where your neck and your jaw is going to be and, and your pillow size and, and composition and all of that? How do you guys account for that when you're looking at this data? Well, what we're, what we're looking at is, is what position you're in. In other words, what position you're in. And that may be determined, of course, by the mattress or sleeping surface but those things are pretty cultural yeah I mean, the kind of mattress you use we think that it's you know having a relatively soft mattress is is good but that's quite western in uh, some oriental countries having a board is considered the ideal sleeping surface and people sleep just fine on those so uh i mean whatever surface you are used to and like we can tell whether or not your position on that is good for your breathing or not, and also pretty tell quite a bit about whether it's good for your sleep or not. So it, it, it's relatively so I, difficult to do a, an A/B test to say, well, if I sleep on a board, I feel this way. Um, I, it, I haven't talked about this in my blog. I'm planning on it, but uh, I replaced my uh, two thousand dollar latex natural flame retardant free mattress with a inch, one inch thick piece of closed cell foam, and it totally improved my sleep quality. Uh, so maybe the maybe um, the Asian sleep practices are better. I, I was amazed. Uh, it, it didn't do it right away. It was actually uncomfortable for a while. But um, so I, I'm I'm keenly interested in all these other things. Also, this would work in a hotel room. So if you go to a hotel and you stop snoring and you feel better, you got to ask yourself: Is it the air in the hotel room? Is it the mattress and the pillows in the hotel room? Is it the light? Is it the sound? And a lot of people have actually dirty air, like they have an air quality problem in their home and they snore more because they're getting allergens because they have dust mites or whatever else and the hotel rooms are relatively clean. 
On the flip side, you can have artificial fragrances and recycled air in hotel rooms that might make it worse. Uh, so it's so many variables that for me, the challenge to understanding my own things has always been, okay, how do I get the data? And this device, the night shift, looks like a, a fascinating way to get really good data, particularly around that sleep movement. But how do you correlate this with all the other crazy things that affect sleep? Well, you, obviously, we don't. Uh, that's up to you. Yeah. But the biggest variable is position. Okay. Gravity is uniform. I mean, you you cannot on this planet escape gravity. <laughs> and it is going to affect the collapsibility yeah. of your airway, no matter what. So that's a huge one. And here you can find out whether it does or doesn't. And... Uh, if you do a sleep test, and by the way, any sleep test any of your uh, people who are listening get needs to measure position. Okay. Needs to measure position. So you ask your doc or whoever uh, about that. And uh, because position is so important, the majority of patients with sleep apnea have uh, a sleep apnea that is strongly influenced by, by position. Now, speaking of position, uh, I've got the the night shift sensor here uh, on the video for people who are are listening or are watching. How does it get positioned? Like, I'll demo it. Tell me how to put this on the best way. Okay, it goes, Dan, you you can, it goes, the little uh, box goes in the back of the neck. Yep. Okay, and the clasp goes in the front of the neck. It's a magnetic clasp, so you put it on. Magnetic clasp, and you, you would need to tighten it. Yep, I would. All right, let's see if I can find the little tightener guy. There it is. The tighteners are the tabs on the side. Oh, I see. I, so I it. it's a magnetic clasp in the front. There you go. I'm sure I haven't been wearing it right. I've worn it a, a couple times, but I haven't had a chance to look at the data yet. So there's, I see the clasps are in the back there. So, Dave, one of the uh, other items before we leave the mattress issue is that as patients who are used to sleeping on their back begin to sleep more on their side, it is important to select the sort of pillows that allow them to not end up with neck or shoulder pain as a result of the different amount of time that they're sleeping in the different position. And there are different um, pillows that are out there that are more orthopedically designed to help, for example, to elevate the head so that you're not reaching over and crushing the shoulder during the night when sleeping on the side. So I think the the issue that you raise is a very important one with position therapy so that you don't end up with other side effects. Uh, so it's like you're treating the sleep apnea, but all of a sudden have poor sleep quality because you now have, sh- have shoulder and neck pain. You know, I, I- Dan, thank you for, for bringing that up. This is something I've been wanting to find someone to ask about this, and I hadn't thought of asking you guys. Um, I've been working on the optimal pillow arrangement for sleeping in order to basically give me better rest. And one of the things I identified, I, I'm a, a pretty muscular guy, um, and I don't work out very much, but just the practices I do have put me that way, and I wasn't a small guy to start with. So when I lay on my side, my head the distance between the edge of my shoulder and my head is much bigger than the average person. And if you listen to this podcast and do this stuff and you work out, you're probably like that too. So when I I go to a hotel, I'm like, you call that a pillow? Like I need two or two and a half of those to hold my head up. So it's straight with my body. Is that what, what you recommend people do kind of get the the alignment of the head 
So it's at a 90 degree angle to the body while you're on a pillow? That, yes. will, that will help support the head and allow the shoulders to not be crushed so much. So it's a you're kind of doing a combination of trying to keep the spine aligned, if you would, that would be straight across. That's kind of the vision of what we're talking about. Okay, that's part of it. Now, if you're laying, let's say, on your right side, your left arm is flopping up here somewhere. You can put it on top of your head. You can put it down. What do you do with the top arm for optimal sleep? Keep it out of your nose. <laughs> Darn, I had that wrong. All right. <laughs> oh, you know, put it wherever it's comfortable. So, so what, what I settled on, and I'm not saying this is optimal, but this is just what worked for me, is I took two pillows and put them inside a single pillowcase. So I have a high-density pillow. So when I'm laying, say, on my right side, my left arm has a pillow under it that holds the left arm up so it's more naturally positioned in the shoulder girdle versus letting it collapse across the front of my body or trying to line it up on the top of my body. And I, I have a history of some rotator cuff injuries from you know playing soccer when I was a 300-pound guy. Um, when you weigh 300 pounds, soccer might sort of wreck your body because you know, that whole starting and stopping thing. But uh, I, I certainly noticed an improvement in how I felt in the morning just when I did this. But I kind of feel like a prima donna because I'm like, well, here's the two pillows that hold my head up. And here's the two pillows that hold my arm up. And oh, by the way, let's put one between the knees to help with the pelvis alignment. So, I, you know, it, maybe it isn't like the, the sexiest position to sleep in. But I tell you, when I prop myself up with the right pillows in the right places the sleep efficiency goes up and you can see it in the data. Um, you're, you guys would expect that result or am I just a delicate flower here? Well, princess, um, <laughs> <laughs> did you find the pee? <laughs> <laughs> yes. right. uh, you may be a bit of a delicate flower. All right. Uh, I, uh, I, I can own up to that. Uh, I, I'm also sometimes just curious about things. So uh, sure. um, now everyone knows I tend to sleep most lately anyway on a on a very thin foam hard pad that's more like a board. Um, but I have pillows that keep my body in the precise alignment uh, that makes me feel best in the morning, and I'm not afraid to say it. And, and Dave, have you attempted to sleep prone before on your stomach? Um, I have, but my neck always hurts. And I, with the the bite guard that I use, I can sleep on my back, and I don't. At least my sound sensors don't pick up that I'm snoring a lot, unless um, I did something nutritionally that I shouldn't do. Like even uh, you know, if if I did have dairy or some things like that, I'll have more mucus, which also can uh, can affect things. So I, I find that one of the biggest things for snoring, if I was, say, to eat a piece of cheese, which really I don't do because I, I don't handle cheese that well. But if I did something like that, or even if I have some uh, kefir, like grass-fed fermented uh, milk, I do get a little bit more mucus from that, and then I snore. But if I'm lying on my back and I've eaten well, I don't snore. And if I lie on my face, I guess it doesn't work. What's your take on, on sleeping prone? Is this, is this a good idea to experiment with to see if it works for you? Well, every body is different. What I can say is I probably sleep when I'm not on, when I'm on the road, I have to sleep laterally. When I'm at home, I sleep almost exclusively on my stomach. I'm I'm working gravity in the opposite direction. So, if I'm sleeping on my stomach, then my tongue is the gravity is helping to bring it forward because you have a small um, dental arch, of course. Okay. So, but but it does require 
a different type of a pillow than is effective when you're on your side. So when you're on your side, you need more pillows to try and support the neck to keep from crushing the shoulders. When you're on your stomach, you need a very, very flat. And so I actually, you know, when I fly to Europe, I actually grab one of the Lufthansa pillows that I use because any time that I'm sleeping on my stomach and, uh, and it causes my head to be too high, then I end up with back pain. Oh, so it requires a very slap, you know, a, a good firm bed. So if I'm on the road and I'm sleeping in a very soft bed, can't sleep on my back and on my stomach at all. You know who else is a stomach sleeper, I think, is, uh, is Tim Ferriss. He wrote about uh, experimenting with sleep positioning as well. I think his final position was, uh, was face down. So I, I think this is a variable that I had never thought to think about in my life until maybe the last five or six years. And uh, getting it right has resulted in a lot less musculoskeletal pain for me and better mm-hmm. quality sleep. So I'm, I'm really intrigued at the idea of, of using um, the night shift sensor. And I, I would encourage you guys, and I, I, I know because of my experience with Basis, you know, there's a fine line between regulatory compliance and you know, is it a consumer device or is it a medical device? But to the extent you can enable people to get an alert uh, without any claims, uh, there's I think a lot of people who would like to just get sleep quality data just like they did from the Zio and everything else. So to the extent that there's a medical grade version and there's a consumer grade version, I think people might want a little thing they could put on kind of like a necklace. And then when they wake up in the morning, they, you know, they, they know something about their environment that they didn't know before. It's a relatively painless way to monitor sleep with a potentially large upside. It's a great idea. Our, because we are a medical device company and we get inspected every couple of years by the FDA, we have to be a little bit more careful on the products we bring to market to not... Um, there's always that kind of gray area between is it a medical device? Are you making medical claims? Or are you walking the tightrope? And we really have to be, because of the other products that we have, have to be very, very careful on that. So you're, you're correct that if we were to pull out the feedback to get them off of their back and it was a simply an actograph and a microphone, that that could be a consumer version of a product. But with a large number of patients who have undiagnosed sleep apnea, and in our study um, of the night shift that was used for the uh, for our FDA data, it's now uh, in the in the medical literature. But we found that 70% of patients, starting with an apnea hypopnea index, they stop breathing twice an hour, all the way up to 60 times per hour. 70% of the people out there. Have are pre- predominantly positional in that the severity of their sleep apnea is at least twice as severe when they're on their back as compared to when they're not on their back. So wow. there's a large number of people out there who could use this as an alternative therapy. I mean, they talk in terms of 20 to 30 million people in the United States that remain undiagnosed with sleep apnea right now. Wow. So, so this is this is a big thing. And I, I would encourage people who are listening to, to check this out and pay attention. And if you're not feeling awesome during the day, what you did the night before could be really the, the problem there. Now, we haven't finalized this, but I'm really hoping that uh, that you guys will be out for the Bulletproof Conference that's coming up in LA, September 26th through 28th. Uh, bulletproofconference.com is where the info is. 
Last year, uh, you guys sent Chris Burka, who talked about, uh, gave a really good talk about some sleep stuff. So I, I'm really hoping that we see you guys there again uh, to give a lecture uh, to the audience and potentially allow them to play with some of the stuff you have that that's you know doesn't require a prescription or at least that that they can experience uh, and touch and feel and and sort of get a sense for what's possible using these embedded sensors and biofeedback because this kind of technology really is it is going to change the world and if you're doing something that you don't know you're doing and you can use a piece of technology to instruct yourself about it I think there's there's very little downside and there's great great value in doing that to help only 20 or 30 million people who could probably use this kind of help. Thanks. Well, now, we will definitely be there in LA, Dave. Okay, cool. So we'll, we'll get you guys in on, on the agenda uh, for, for the conference. And I'm, uh, I'm really excited that the first biohacking conference was about 18 months ago. Uh, we put that on in San Francisco. And uh, this one is going to be amazing because we're going to be hearing from experts like you and we're going to actually have the tech there so people can do upgrades and they can, can not just learn something, but they can experience something, including uh, things from the Flow Genome Project, where they're using some of the medical sensors you guys uh, uh, have manufactured in order to track what happens uh, to audience members when they go into a flow state using some of the other technology that we'll have on hand. So it, it's going to be one great big biofeedback party, let me tell you. And before we go, because we're running out of time, there is a question uh, that I've asked every guest on the show and one that, that's uh, pretty important. And since there's two of you, I guess we get six answers. In fact, we'll do two answers each because we're in a bit of a, a, a time crunch to make sure that, that we get the show done on time. Normally I say, what are your top three pieces of advice for people who want to perform better? It doesn't have to be from you know, your career, but just your, in your life's experience, the top things that are most important. And Philip, I'd love to hear from you first. Um, you've had an, an imp impressive career. You've learned a lot of things. What are the two most important things you've learned in your entire life? Well, I would, I would suggest that one of the most important things is to allow yourself adequate time to sleep. That sleep is critically important for well-being and that it is not uh, something that you can adjust your need for. You have a certain need for sleep and if you don't get it, you're going to pay the price and it's not going to be pretty. Uh, the second thing is that uh, your your sleeping surfaces and all the rest are important and uh, those sorts of things you can find out pretty much for yourself, sometimes with the help of technology, but uh, if you have a question about it, experiment with it. Uh, find, find out what's, what's best for you and I guess you're an advocate of that as, as I would be as well. So those are two things, I, I'll both bound up with sleep, but just just remember, sleeping less is not a victory of any kind. Sleeping <laughs> more is. Okay. Uh, well, I think uh, we'll, we'll settle on sleeping better is certainly a goal. Yeah, sleeping. <laughs> uh, thank you, uh, Philip. I, I really appreciate that. Sure. Dan, you've had some extra time to think here. Uh, share some of your wisdom. What do you think? Well, the one thing um, that I would recommend is that there is a reluctance 
by men in particular to go see or find out if they have sleep apnea. And the studies have shown that if you have severe undiagnosed sleep apnea, you're going to probably die five years earlier than you would otherwise need to. So, and late in life, it's going to be really ugly between strokes, heart disease, cardiovascular disease. So it just because you're not overweight doesn't mean you don't have sleep apnea. And I would recommend to everybody to consider the implications as we try and biohack this, that you can do all of the nutritional things and everything else. But if you have the underlying sleep disorder, you're just dabbling around the edges. That, uh, to reiterate that one, yeah, you're. It, it's not about just getting five more years of not dying. It's what happens in the fifteen or so years before you die that's really going to exactly. suck. So you, you got to nail that and nail it before it happens. Because if you wait, and I say this as an anti-aging, you know, nonprofit leader guy, it's much harder to fix yourself when you're eighty than it was to not break yourself when you're thirty. So, amen on that one. Tell me about it. <laughs> You look like you're doing all right, Philip. <laughs> all right, Dan, you got one more. What's our, what's your other big piece of wisdom that you've learned uh, about your all of life and performing well? It doesn't have to be sleep, but it can be. Stay intellectually curious. Stay curious. Look at tools. Figure out how to understand how the pieces fit together for you. Love it. Now... Thank you both so much for being guests on the show. Can you uh, give me a URL so that when people are uh, uh, listening to this, they can go to your website? And certainly we'll put this on the show notes on the site as well. But uh, just tell people where they can get a hold of you and remind them of what they should ask their doctor for, uh, for the, to get a device that can help them figure out what's going on with their sleep. So information about the night shift is at www.nightshifttherapy.com. And then there is also a lot of literature on the advancedbrainmonitoring.com site that they could print out and take to their physician. The advanced brain monitoring site is a little bit more tailored for um, clinicians to gather information about our technology. The night shift therapy is a little bit more um, designed for the users to learn how the technology could help them. Dan and Philip from Advanced Brain Monitoring, thank you both for being on the show today. Have an awesome day. Thank you. Thanks, Dave. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. 
This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.